I'm Mark Caro, and welcome to episode 40 of Caro Pop. This is part two of our conversation with Peter Holtzapple of the DBs, who also played with REM and Hootie and the Blowfish. When we finished part one, Chris Stamey had just left the DBs, and Holtzapple was the sole remaining singer-songwriter as the band prepared to make its U.S. label debut and to take its great leap forward. The DBs signed to Bearsville Records, owned by Bob Dylan manager Albert Grossman, and Holsapple wrote a strong bunch of tunes for the album, which would be titled Like This and produced by Chris Butler of The Waitresses. The songs included the pure guitar pop of She Got Soul and Love Is For Lovers, the danceable A Spy In The House Of Love, and the shimmering Lonely Is As Lonely Does, which would be covered by Marty Jones. As Holsapple explains, something went awry in the mixes and then in the distribution and then with the label itself. It would be three years before the band would be free to release its follow-up album, The Sound of Music, on R.E.M.'s old label, IRS. That experience was fraught as well. The Sound of Music was produced by Greg Edward, who had engineered for Don Gaiman, who had produced R.E.M.'s Life's Rich Pageant. Ironically, R.E.M. would move on from Gaiman to begin a long association with former DB's producer, Scott Litt. Holtzapple recalls some challenges regarding the Sound of Music's recording process, the equipment being used, and the feedback he was getting from the label. Then there was IRS's strategy of pushing the song I Lie as the lead single. Of something more upbeat, such as change with the changing times or never say when. Soon, the DBs were no more, and Holsapple was free to accept an invitation to join REM on stage for its tour supporting the blockbuster album Green. Holsapple remained with REM as it recorded what would become its most popular album to date, Out of Time. That's Holsapple strumming the acoustic guitar on the massive hit Losing My Religion and playing bass on radio song. And low. I the part He's on other tracks as well, and he offers keen insights into the recording of that album, with the musicians constantly switching up instruments. I Who did Holsapple feel was a key songwriting force in that band? He tells us here. Holsapa was still the fifth bandmate on R.E.M.'s MTV Unplugged performance in 1991, but a dispute over songwriting credits ended his association with R.E.M., as well as some long-standing friendships, at least for a while. This is a painful topic, and Holsapple explores it in eye-opening, heartbreaking detail here. Holsapple would go on to become a touring member of Hootie and the Blowfish, to record three duo albums with Chris Stamey, and to release two solo albums, Out of My Way and Game Day. Game Day. Game Day. Do I have enough to try to 
four original DBs reunited for the 2012 album Fallen Off the Sky, with Holesapple putting things in perspective on the kickoff track, That Time Is Gone. What was that experience like? Is there any chance the DBs will play together again? And why are the first two DBs albums, Stands for Decibels and Repercussion, plus The Sound of Music, not available in any digital format? Is anything happening with the Peter Holsapple trio, which featured DB's drummer Will Rigby? What about the Continental Drifters? Or does Holsapple see himself proceeding solely as a solo artist from now on? What's the best way to move forward in the current climate when you're still writing and singing excellent songs? Peter Holsapple has made much great music over his long career and learned a lot along the way. We're fortunate to have him sharing so much in part two of our Carol Pop conversation. Enjoy. So going into make uh, like this, this, you've been in all these bands and been involved in all these albums, but this is the first one where you're actually the singer songwriter front man. Were you excited about that? Were you daunted by it? I don't think I was excited. Exactly. I think there were enough good songs that I'd written to where I felt that we could confidently put out a good 11 or 12 song record of my songs and not have to worry about it with the departure of Chris. Now, you know, I mean, truth to tell, as time has passed, a lot more people love repercussion than they do like this. I totally understand that. Um, but we had hopes that being on an American label, Bearsville Records, that we thought was a great place because we loved Todd Rundgren and we thought that there would be a lot of potential there. So my feeling was no overriding sense of confidence or anything uh, outside of, I think this is going to be a good record. I think we're going to have a good record. And I, you know, we, we got Chris Butler to produce it because I thought that Christmas wrapping by the waitresses was a brilliant sounding record. I agree. It made me cry whenever I heard it. I listened to that bass line that Tracy Wormworth did. I listened to Billy's drums. Everything about it was just perfect, you know? And I thought, wow. And then Chris ended up being a great guy and a lot of fun to work with. And unfortunately, he got the bum's rush from Albert Grossman when the record was done. And the, the work that he and Michael Frambelli had done got rejected, and they pulled... Todd Rundgren in to say, this is what you need to do. And then Gene and the studio manager and engineer, Mark McKenna, did another mix of it. And that's the version that came out on Bearsville. And that's a great version, too. So How is the first one different? I did not know about these two different versions. It's just different. I can't explain it. To me, it's warmer somehow. It's been years since I've listened to it. You know, I can't even say that it's warmer. I mean, memories are pretty warm, aren't they? If you think about them long enough. Um, I had a re recollection of the mix of black and white that ended up on I Thought You Wanted to Know last year. And my recollection was that Don Dixon had sort of tossed it off that it was in mono also. And that's one of the reasons that we couldn't use it. And it was sped up. And now listening to it, 
it you know it wasn't in mono it's got a lot of different factors in it that are different from the version that ended up on the record but well, memory tends to glaze over some of the truths that we should hold self-evident but when like this came out I mean, I remember thinking, oh, now people are hearing the DBs. I mean, I saw you open for uh, R.E.M. at uh, the Tower Theater in Philadelphia. I was going to school there. That was I, a great show. I, it was a great show. And and I would be home for, uh, I was, you know, grew up in Chicago and WXRT was playing Love is for Lovers and Spy in the House of Love. So I was hearing you on the radio next to, you know, whatever else was coming out that year, uh, you know, South Central Rain or whatever else. And they sounded great. So it seemed like there was there was some breakthrough happening um i don't know what it felt like to you at the time though well our problem was that we had this great record and there was a lot of noise back and forth between us and our management that maybe we should think about not putting it out on barrisville before we put it out on barrisville um, the reason being that there was not a lot of confidence that things would go like we were really banking on. And this came to pass in a number of different ways. First, the promo copies of Like This were sent out, and many of them actually did not have our record inside, but had, in fact, the new Harold Melvin and the Blue Nuts record. Yeah, see, that would be a problem, I would think. Often it was. Uh, for reviewers, some of whom thought that they would be really pithy and review that as our record, har-de-har-har. Har. Um, and obviously for radio stations that thought that they were going to play a DB's record and were discovered that they didn't have one. And then compounded after that, the distribution deal that Bearsville Records had with Warner Brothers lapsed. And this is right when Randy Van Warmer had a song rising up into the top 40 called Just When I Needed You Most, which is a lovely soft rock song um, by a very talented songwriter. And so he really felt the brunt of that by having the distribution disappear and making it impossible to buy this record that you heard that is a hit. And that's awful. Now, we just happened to be out on the road with R.E.M., and you couldn't get our record at the stores. And so any sort of promotion that we might be doing with live shows, playing with this rising arena act, was kind of lost. Um, we would go and do in-stores and... I mean, I remember signing a flat for Planet Waves by Bob Dylan because there was nothing else to sign, you know, or if there were DB's records, it was the, you know, aforementioned 1699 copy of Stance for Decibels. So we got kind of uh, disturbed with this and it was a big problem. And it was one that we had trouble recovering from. Because then we spent years trying to get out of the Bearsville contract. And Albert Grossman passed away in the middle of that on a flight to Medem in Cannes. And he left with no, uh, no will. So 
that was a mess. And we had to ride that out. There was a band in Richmond called The Deal, who were also a great band. They didn't even get to put anything out on Parisville. You know, NRBQ got screwed in that deal, too, because they had just done Grooves in Orbit, you know, and that came out to nothing, to no, no palpable effect, except for the people that knew NRBQ and loved them. And so they bought the records. So, and you wound up on IRS for The Sound of Music. And I think, was that album like three years later? Is that why there was a lag between those two? Yes. That, it took us three years to get out of the deal with Ferrisville, or what was the residual embers of Ferrisville. And, you know, IRS was interested. Jay Boberg was interested. Carrie Baker was working publicity. He was a big fan. All those great people there. Keith Altamare. Um, we knew all of those guys from, our, from the tours with REM because IRS would show up at the shows and they liked the DBs and they wanted to sign us. And, I, and REM was like banging the drum for us. And so eventually, yeah, we finally got to sign, you know, and this is like at that point, Gene was like, I don't know what to do. I just want to stay in the band, but I don't know. You know, so he did the record with us. He did, you know, we signed with IRS and uh, unfortunately IRS would only sign us if I signed away my publishing to their publishing wing. Really? And as you know, as having written a book on songwriting that Cardinal rule number one for any songwriter is you do not sign your publishing away to the same people that run your record label because you need to have everybody in a kind of an adversarial role. Your manager needs to be able to work with the record company and the publishing company and not necessarily play them off each other, but use them together to get something for the artist. And when everything's all in one basket with the publishing and the record company, it's like, yeah, well, what do you want? Oh, well, I can't do that. Can't do that. You know? So we ended up using a publishing advance to help pay for our tour with REM, who had left the label and had gone on to greener pastures at, at Warner Brothers. And we were happy for that, you know? But... You know, it was hard. It was not easy trying to put out a record like The Sound of Music. And, you know, I mean, we'd had situations where Miles Copeland had come up to the mixing sessions and the vocal sessions at Quad Studios in Times Square and was like sitting around and saying, are these the guide vocals? And I'm like, Jesus, no, these are the lead vocals, <laughs> dude. And so he immediately went out and said, well, you have to get singing lessons. So we went to this vocal coach and that was crazy you know i <laughs> know that's not going to exactly put you in a creative positive mindset i wouldn't think well the positive mindset was set was already starting to uh walk away to say the least if not run or you know drive uh, so the and the producer was what it was greg edward who had greg edward Life, we life had, yeah, we had we had loved we loved the Mellencamp records. We thought that those things sounded great. We thought Kenny Aronoff's drums 
were the best sounding drums in years, you know? And we thought that they he did a great job on Life's Rich Pageant. Life's Rich Pageant, yeah. We thought that was marvelous, but we couldn't afford Don. Don was commanding a large fee. And so he was like, well, you should just use Greg Edward instead. So we got Greg and Greg was cool. You know, he had us record up at Quad in New York, uh, which was on the 18th floor of a building in Times Square. It's sort of more famous for where Tupac, I believe, got shot in front of at one point. Uh, but, you know, half the time the elevators didn't work. We'd just gotten off a tour using half-stack marshals, but Greg said, well, you only mic one speaker anyway, so just bring Fender Champs. So we got small amps. And that, to me, is the biggest failing of that record, is that they record the guitar amps sound like little transistor eight-inch speaker amps and don't have much breadth. And then we went out and we mixed it out at Can-Am, maybe, in Los Angeles, after which I after I had driven and moved out to L.A. in a 63 Rambler with all my stuff packed inside. And, you know, we presented it and they put it out and they did a thing where they serviced record labels and said, I lie, plus 11 bonus tracks in lieu of putting out a 12 inch of I lie. You know, I lie was the first single from the record. I don't know that that's the thing that you want to put out. It's a little bit like starting the third Dwight Twilley record with Out of My Hands. It's sort of like this anchor, you know, instead of a something buoyant. At least we started with Never Say When and, and, and Change of the Changing Times. And I think either one of those would have been a far more reasonable choice. Or Molly Says, or Think Too Hard. You know, I, I just didn't get it. I mean, I like I Lie. I think it's a great song. <laughs> we actually presented that to Aaron Neville as a possible cover. And he sent word back through our bass player, Jeff Beninato, to me. Aaron said, tell that boy to work on his yodel. <laughs> well, that's why you get Aaron Neville to do it. <laughs> I wish. Yeah. Well, Think Too Hard, I think, is the one that I was hearing like on the radio at the time. But yeah, that, that, and that album had a more sort of produced, maybe, I don't know if I could say less lively feel than like this. It just, it felt a little less spontaneous. I mean, there were still really good songs on it, but it felt like a little more, you know, work in the studio. Well, there was definitely a lot of pre-production for that record. Um, you know, some songs like um, Better Place had been around since the days of... Uh, that was like a demo for repercussion originally. And it talk about songs that did not come immediately. That one was so worked over and rewritten and rearranged to the point of, yeah, there's almost no uh, enthusiasm in that track um, from me or from anybody. I think we all tried, but ah. Uh, Molly said had been around for a long time too, but I think that came off. Okay. Um, we were absolutely convinced that we had to make a record that could be played on radio, whether that was college radio, which we assumed that would be our destination or potentially commercial radio, but we knew we had to do that. We could not afford to try to make some kind of, wildly 
you know, creative record, I think. And I don't know that we would have had that record in us anyway without Chris, you know? I think that my writing was definitely more attempting to be something that somebody could cover or somebody could use in a movie or a TV show, you know? I think we felt that very, very strongly from the label and also from ourselves, that we didn't understand why success was evading us on a commercial level. We had the aesthetic success of being proud of these records that people liked, and that was great. And we felt like that was a success, but we just couldn't make that next leap somehow. Well, and you get tied up in the business stuff instead of just the artistic, all right, what's the next record we're going to make? What's the next song we're going to write next show? We're going to perform. Like I would, I, I would think that all of that other extracurricular stuff, especially after you went through what you went through with Bearsville would just be kind of undermining you as a creative person. Well, again, the creative holds Apple writes these songs because he has to. So there was absolutely songs being written. I mean, I was, I wrote a lot of songs that didn't even make it onto that record, you know, um, one's a B side Sharon. Uh, but you know, I, I didn't know any better. I was writing and I didn't specifically say I'm going to write commercial songs, but I did try to write as much as I could in hopes that a Greg Edward or a Chris Butler would come along and say, Oh yeah, well that's a commercial sounding song. We should do that. Or a, or or somebody from the label saying, "Yeah, okay, well we can get that in a TV show." You know, they got Change of the Changing Times on a Twenty One Jump Street. My wife, uh, who is eighteen years younger than I am, said, "Oh, I know that song from the TV show," and it was like I had no idea it was me. And I was like, "No kidding." <laughs> Songs are interesting animals in that they have lives of their own. And so when something like that comes along, when it's used in a TV show, or amazingly enough, if it's used in a TV show 40 years later, uh, billions use Love Is For Lovers, I believe, for one of their episodes. People wrote to me and said, holy cow. And that was a great show because they used two pylon songs. And, a, and I think they may have used two um, uh, Guadalcanal diary songs. You know, it's pretty neat, you know, and, and that's the life of a song. If it gets used or it gets heard or loved later in its existence, then you as a songwriter have done your job correctly. You've made something that has stood the test of time. And it feels good to do that. It feels good. You know, I think it's going to be neat to go out and play these 40 year old songs for people in the acoustic format. And they'll be like, I remember that when I was in college and much like the Hootie and the Blowfish things, but on a infinitely smaller level, you know, if I can trigger a few happy memories in people from college days, then again, I'm doing my job right. And that's good.
sort of ironic that you guys went with Don Gaiman's engineer, um, and then REM went from Don Gaiman to Scott Litt, who had produced Repercussion, and who I think went on you know the db's recommendation and mitch easter told me that that you were the one who connected them with him in the first place as well that's so, true so you hooked them up with their two long-term producers oh i'm a conduit all right <laughs> <laughs> when we went up and we're working on the rem record um out of time we did that at bearsville and by that time bearsville studio a which was the really really big room had purchased the api recording console from the Who's studio in Battersea, Ramport Studios, uh, which the DBs had used when we recorded Repercussion. So they hauled that thing across the Atlantic, stuck it in Studio A, and there I was recording on it again. Wow. So you started playing with REM on the Green Tour? Yes. I had done a tour after repercussion where i went out in the van with the four guys in jefferson and my acoustic guitar and i opened sets for them and i did some songs with them at the end and i changed strings when they'd break and help haul gear and stuff and we did that for a couple months and it was a ball and then they were sweet enough to invite the dbs out for a couple of tours and then when it was evident that the DBs had, in the words of Bob Dylan, split up on the docks that night, was agreeing it was best, um, which actually did happen in Mobile, Alabama, after a show. Um, I got a call from Jefferson Holt saying, if you're not doing anything, what would you think about coming out on the REM tour as the extra set of hands on keyboards and guitar and what have you. And I was like, I'm not doing anything next year. So I went out and did that whole green world tour. And that started in Japan and worked its way through Australia and New Zealand and came back, went across the U S from the West coast, to the East coast, then went to Europe and England and came back and went back across the U.S. East Coast to West Coast. And that took up the better part of a year. And it was a gas. It was such fun. It really was. Playing those beautiful songs every night. Having somebody hauling a B3 around and setting it up for me every night and tearing it down. Oh, yeah. That was great. It was amazing. And then did they call you to say, hey, we're working on this album. We want you to be in the room for it. Yeah, we, uh, uh, at the end of things, we had worked on some songs on tour. We had played some of the songs that ended up being on um, Out of Time. There's a song called Belong that we yeah, worked on. I think that and Low, I remember seeing you guys play at the Boston Garden. Yes. Um, those two, I think, were the main ones that we had done before. A part of me says that I may have heard Texarkana before that, but everything else was kind of news to me. And I went and rehearsed with them. Did I rehearse with them at John Keene's maybe in Athens before we went up to Bearsville? If not, I was definitely up from the get-go at Bearsville, and I had borrowed a guitar from our local guitar legend, Sam Moss in Winston-Salem, because he was starting to use these and, and carry these beautiful guitars by a brand called Taylor 
from Santee, California. And he, Sam, who was Winston-Salem's Mike Bloomfield. If Mitch was our Eric Clapton, Sam was our Mike Bloomfield. He was just the best guitar player that ever grabbed a Les Paul in town. And he was testifying about Taylor guitars and being the generous cat that he was, he was like, yeah, you should take this up with you. Tell him, tell Peter Buck, he needs to get one of these things too. So I went up there and that was a guitar that I used on losing my religion and on Texarkana, but both I played acoustic guitar on both of those. And, um, I think that's why I think Peter eventually ended up getting a 12 string. Um, I had, the one that I used on uh, MTV Unplugged, which was a beautiful uh, single Florentine cutaway guitar. Chris and I had our matching tailors out on the road for the Mavericks tour that we did. Um, and that's the greatest acoustic guitar I've ever owned. And I wish I still had it. They got stolen from the Hard Rock Cafe Hotel in Las Vegas at a, after a hootie gig. Oh, wow. These things happen. Um, but yeah, so we did a lot of recording up in the A studio, which I had not used very much. It's a really amazing, amazing room. There's pictures that you see of the studio where, where the band was set up in there. I mean, it was big enough to where there's a, there was a, an ISO booth that was, you could probably park a car in, but then there was also enough room to have, gobos around the drums and record live drums in there and record live stuff. And it was the first place I'd ever seen with the little, the little headphone stations. And that was great. And that was new and wonderful, you know? So it was a, it was a gas. Um, and I always try to get in there when the studio, the sessions would start just because kind of the, I was getting paid as the hired hand, you know, and I wanted to be there. I didn't want to miss, uh, you know, I didn't want them to have to call me. But, you know, a lot of times they'd be out playing golf and, you know, nothing to be happening for a couple, three hours. So that was okay too. You know, I got to, I got a lot of reading done. Were you, were you writing at the time too? I'm sure I was. I don't think I was, I think I was trying to concentrate on just being a good REM player and make sure that I had everything down and was, was offering up the, the good stuff that I could provide, you know, the bass parts and the guitar, whatever they needed. They, uh, Mike did most of the keyboards on that record, I believe. Um, and I was pretty much the stuff that I did was like electric guitar on belong bass on radio song bass on low, uh, acoustic on losing my religion, acoustic on Texarkana. And I can't remember. I may have done something else, but I can't remember. But those are the main the main items that I got to play on. That album, Out of Time, was one where they were really kind of switching up what instruments they were playing. So you yeah, were sort I of mean, switching around what you were doing, too. I was happy to, again, be of service on whatever instrument was required of a song. So the fact that Peter wrote Losing My Religion on mandolin, uh, and he was absolutely doing that and you know i mean one thing that people need to remember about rem songwriting is that bill barry was a driving force as a songwriter in that band for so long i mean if you like perfect circle that's him that's his piano and you know talk about then there's a song that 
I never, ever got tired of playing night after night. I would have played that with the band. And it was just great to be entrusted with that beautiful piano part. And, you know, Mills plays a lot of piano on stuff and organ. And so I tried to replicate that, you know, getting to play life and how to live it. <laughs> begin to begin, you know, stuff like that. Great songs on the instruments. Um, what did I watch recently? Uh, oh, it was a, somebody posted You Are the Everything from a TV performance that we did. But it was a live setup, and I played the piano on that. And it's just a little piano solo. And Bill's behind me playing bass, and Mills is playing accordion, and Peter's playing mandolin. And it just sounded great, you know? And it was a fun, fun ensemble. I, you know, same thing with Hootie, getting to play all those songs and you know, what do you need on this? You know, you need mandolin. Okay, I can play that. You need steel guitar. I can play that. I mean, I got to play bass with Hootie and the Blowfish when they would do What's So Funny About Peace, Love, and Understanding. What a gas. I even had, um, um, what's her name? Uh, Michelle Ndicello, Ndicello, who was sitting in with us, say, man, you're a good bass player. I was like, oh, you didn't just say that to me, did you? <laughs> Great bass player are you? <laughs> So that was pretty, pretty, very cool, you know? So on, on the out of time sessions, were the songs sort of brought in complete or were you, were they kind of feeling them out in the studio and were you involved in sort of contributing parts to them? I think my parts were the parts, often parts were given to me to play. I developed stuff, the songs that we played on tour, low and belong were parts that I came in playing the parts that I'd played live that I developed on the songs. Then um, with a song like losing my religion, I just had to play it a few times. In fact, I played an acoustic rhythm track. I think that they recorded bass and drums and mandolin. And I played acoustic after the fact, not positive, but I do know that, they all were like really happy with the first take that I'd done of the song. And then I listened to it and I was like, I really got to do this again. It's just not locking like it needs to lock. Because, you know, after years of playing with Will Rigby as rhythm guitar and drum, you know, I know how it has to lock. I have to breathe with the drums on whatever rhythm part I'm playing. And Bill Berry is a very breathing organic drummer and so i went back and so that's like the second take of the acoustic guitar on that but it locked all the way through and i was i was like that i can live with so on your wikipedia page it, it says he participated in the writing and development as well as the recording of their 1991 multi-platinum release out of time but subsequently left his sideman role with rem due, due to rumored disputes over songwriting credits so that's wikipedia is that accurate i think at the time my feeling was that because i had developed the bass part that i played and recorded on the song low specifically that i would also participate as a songwriter in the sense that the i felt that what I was playing was much like the conga part in that it was a valuable part of the song that was 
absolutely a part of the creation of the song. Uh, I realized afterward and had it explained to me by one of the members of the band that that was not going to be the case, that it had been a problem with the band earlier with a prior album that had somebody that participated outside of the four members of the band and that that had gone down not very well. And so that it was a situation where it was expected of me to know that that would not be the situation. And I did not know that. I did not feel that at the time. It's been many years since that happened. Um, I felt sort of undervalued for that. And, but, you know, what is it, 30 some odd years since that record came out? And the hardest thing was to lose friendship with those guys over this. That it felt like by my asking for participation in one song on the record, that I had violated some unspoken code of conduct, which apparently got contractualized with uh, my replacement at one point. Uh, and that's fine. I, I didn't plan for it to be set up as such, but I understand that they felt the need to protect their investment. Um, but it was sad because I loved those guys. And Peter and Mike especially were really dear friends of mine. And it was like that for many years. And then we didn't talk. Nobody talked. And I didn't talk about it because I didn't feel like I needed to. They didn't talk about it, except some of them did. And that's okay. Then they had to deal with those stuff that went on with management and changing hands on that. And so eventually, I was at South by Southwest at a show. And somebody said, Mike Mills is over there. You should go say hi. I was like, I should go say hi. So I went up to him and I said, hi. And he was like, hi. And we just sort of looked at each other and just hugged each other. And just the, anything that might have happened that had created that situation in the past was at least not important from there. And to me, that has been a great gift of generosity on the part of the band. Um, and we were invited then, the DBs were invited to play at the Carnegie Hall tribute to REM that Michael Dorff from City Winery put on. Um, it was a great, great show with all sorts of people like Kristen Hirsch was there and Vic Chestnut and Patti Smith. I can't even think who all was on the bill. But we got to start the show and we did Fall on Me and we invited Don Dixon to come and play with us. And so we did an arrangement of the song that was kind of cool. I did a, we broke the middle part down and did sort of like what's on uh, Shiny Happy People where it turned into a waltz section and then got back to 4-4 again. And we had a ball, hmm. you know, and it was nice to see Michael and it was nice to see Peter and Mike and it felt really good to be invited. 
And since then, I've seen Peter when he played at the um, a baseball project show years ago at Cat's Cradle in Chapel Hill. And I got up and played a Flame Groovy song with him. And uh, I've seen Mills a number of times. He came to my solo show in Athens at the roof of the Georgia Theater last year. And what a gas it was to see him. So, you know, it's nice to have that back in, in play. That's great. I mean, your histories are so intertwined. I mean, just from, from early on and between you and, and Mitch and Don Dixon and, and everyone else, like it's, it's a really tight community. So yeah, I'm, gl- I'm, I'm glad to hear that you guys are back in on, on good terms and everything else. Cause I was always excited because it was like two of my favorite bands. Uh, you know, I would, I've been like, I remember seeing that green show and I was just like, hey, it's Peter Holzapple. I just saw him with the DBs at the paradise, you know? Um, and, uh, so, so yeah, of course I want all my favorite musicians to be good with each other. Well, it took a little bit of time, but you know, it's like any, any falling out that you have, you start looking at the time you have and the time you've spent and the time you have left, you know, and put all that together and try to make it into a game plan for the rest of your time on the planet. And I, would rather not be grouchy with people <laughs> if I can avoid it. That was just a dream. Try, cry, why, try. That was just a dream. Just a dream. Just a dream. Dream. So you did Falling Off the Sky, which is how much did you enjoy doing that? And, and could you see ever playing the four of you again? Falling Off the Sky was a record that was a difficult experience to put together and in a lot of ways because it involved people's time and jobs. We started working on the record when we first, after we'd done these, like when you saw us in 2005 or so, we were like, oh, well, we could you know, we got a couple of songs here and we could maybe record them. So we went up to water music in Hoboken and recorded a bunch of songs. And we did a, we did a version of what becomes of the brokenhearted that we put out as a charity to help fund charity that uh, helped new Orleans musicians post Katrina, which I had lived in new Orleans and had played in the continental drifters for 10 years Uh, a great deal of that time had been in New Orleans and had lost a former brother-in-law in in the flood in Barry Cowsill. And so it was important that we be involved in that. And so we cut that really nice version of what becomes the brokenhearted, which had been a cover of the DBs before I joined the band when it was the three piece as Christine and the DBs. And so it was like bringing that back out. And I'm really proud of that. I think that's the best vocal I've ever recorded with the band. It felt good. It sounded good. And I can still listen to it today. So we recorded some other songs, too. And um, and then it was, became one of those situations where it was like, oh, well, we've recorded five songs. Maybe we should record more. Maybe we should do an album. And we so we sort of did that. And it took a little bit of time because Gene's up in New Jersey and Will was in Cleveland at that point. And I was back in North Carolina. And so, and then, then Will moved back to North Carolina. Um, 
And it was still, again, trying to coordinate stuff. And meanwhile, I had to get a job. I had to get a job. We had no benefits. We had not a lot of anything going on. Um, so I started working at the new Performing Arts Center in Durham and became administrative assistant there, which was something that was well outside of my comfort zone. I had to learn a lot. Um, I learned a lot about business writing. I learned a lot about trade agreements with merchants. I learned a lot about managing an event, all sorts of stuff that was sort of the other side of show business. Um, but I had, I had uh, insurance again. It was amazing. My family had insurance. So I did that for a while. And meanwhile, trying to find time to come over to Chris's studio. Chris had a studio at his house to sing. And, you know, that was never a quick thing because Chris would like to get a lot of vocals and then comp that and put it together into a decent sounding thing. So I understood that. Anyway, it took a couple of three years to get that record together. By that time that it was ready to be released by a bar none, I really couldn't tour. I had this full-time job. I couldn't just drop the bricks and go out and hop in a van with a bunch of 50-year-olds again and hopefully somebody to help drive us around and, you know, open up for bands and 300-capacity clubs. It just didn't feel like something I could do. You know, my family was depending on this, so I had to beg off on that. So it was a record that came out with no evidence of promotion on the part of the band except for a few shows and that's a shame because it also is a very good record but i think it's going to see the light of day again yeah you came here so but that but i guess that was you did not do a lot of shows for it i don't think i believe we played the a party uh was that the place where we played the two shows we played one was at a barbecue restaurant in north carolina acc themed barbecue restaurant that had a big map of North Carolina with all the teams like UNC and NC State and Clemson and Wake Forest. I mean, we felt right at home. I mean, I went That's to UNC. Great. I love Tar Heel basketball. You know, I'm the only person in my family that likes Tar Heel basketball. Everybody else loves Duke. So you guys are at the House of Blues in Chicago, but it was like the sort of the the other room. It wasn't like the huge the restaurant. Room. Yeah, we played in a restaurant. What the fuck? <laughs> I mean, we played outside. I ran into a lot of friends of mine at that show, though. I know. And, you know, I'm really glad. And I will say this. Chicago was the greatest market for the DBs, thanks to WXRT. You know, we got played on that station. Was it Norm Weiner, who was the PD there? Yeah. He did yeah. a wonderful job. And we owe him a debt of thanks that we could never possibly repay. Um, but, you know, we felt like a, we felt like popular in chicago you know that was a nice feeling to walk to drive into town and hear you hear amplifier on the radio my god you know amazing so can you see doing more db shows or do you think that's done i don't know hard to say ask me next year okay i will <laughs> i don't think it's gonna, i don't think anything's going to happen this year right now we're trying to figure out some legalese with some releases and stuff but you know we get together and talk we talked yesterday on zoom and you know everybody's doing good uh chris yeah. is working hard in his studio i'm going on my tour um why aren't they all those albums available digitally right now most of them 
Like this is available online. Right. That was the one. I believe that may be the only one that's up. Um, you will, uh, I believe that bar none has allowed the rights to falling off the sky to revert back to the DBs. Um, I thought you wanted to know 1978 to 1981 is available on streaming services, right? But stance for decibels repercussion, the sound of music are no longer available, nor is the ill-conceived best of the IRS years by the DBs misspelled available anymore. Um, these are due to situation with the company that owns the masters, which is universal music group who have removed everything from the streaming services. Why you would have to ask universal music. We do not know. I mean, it seems easy enough to not remove them. What do I know? One would think. Were those tapes part of that big fire too? Or are those, do those actually exist I somewhere still? I don't know. I, of the tapes that could possibly be, uh, I know Chris had some tapes from his stuff that was on Coyote via uh, MCA, I think, or Capital. Our catalog, I, it's hard to say. I think that they, the first two records, when those were re-released by IRS, they were remastered by Chris and Gene. So I don't know that master tapes are there. There may be something there, but I don't know. Of the tapes of artists that might be in there, I, there's a good chance that The Sound of Music was among those. Um, suffice to say, the communication between Universal Music Group and the DBs has not been very uh, efficient or pleasant. But I'll leave it at that. Well, maybe I'll have to make some calls and find out what the hell's going on because those records should be available. People should be able to hear them. So there. It would be nice. Those are the ones that people really want to hear. Yeah. So. And like this, I'm glad that like this is out there because that's a great Me record. Me too. Me too. That record may come back to us next year. But we'll hopefully, hopefully we'll have that back. I want to hear the other mix of it now. <laughs> That's it for episode 40 of Carol Pop. Thanks again to Peter Hulsapple for telling such insightful stories and making so much great music. He is a generous artist in many ways. You can hear some of his music on peterhulsapple.bandcamp.com and you should check out his blog, Does This Band Make Me Look Fat? at halfpairblog.blogspot.com. That's half, H-A-L-F-P-E-A-R-B-L-O-G dot blogspot.com. Although much of the DB's catalog is maddeningly not in print or available in digital formats, you can stream the excellent 1984 album Like This. A compilation of early DB's recordings, I Thought You Wanted to Know, also is available on the Propeller label. Caropop is produced by Chris Wake, who's got soul. I'm Mark Caro. Please follow me on Twitter at Mark Caro, at M-A-R-K-C-A-R-O. And visit the Caro Pop website, caropop.com, for posts about music, movies, and food, and also this Caro Pop podcast. Please share, subscribe, and tune in again next week for another Caro Pop conversation. Thank you. Thank you.